because in him is found the salvation of humanity because he is in and of himself in his very nature and being he is and thankfully he is ever Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Would you turn with me please in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. Over the last couple of Sundays we've been spending Sunday morning in Isaiah chapter 9 particularly verse 6, and we're returning there this morning. You'll find it on page 1072, 1072 of the Church Bible. Isaiah is writing about 700 years before the birth of Christ, and he is prophesying about the Messiah who is still to come. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His Holy Word. Now, over the last few weeks, as we have been spending our Sunday mornings with Isaiah in chapter 9, we've been looking particularly at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And when you read those words, your first question, of course, is this, what do they mean? Now, Isaiah fully understood that words matter, and he very carefully constructed his book when writing. Now, sometimes I'm tempted to think that he carefully constructed this verse as the Holy Spirit took hold of Isaiah and inspired him and helped him craft exactly what to say. And two weeks ago, we looked at mighty, we looked at uh, mighty God, and then we looked, sorry, last week was mighty God, and today is everlasting Father. And two weeks ago, we looked at Wonderful Counselor. And when we think of Everlasting Father, what does that mean? Well, of course, Isaiah, as we said minutes ago, chose it very carefully. He was very particular in what he was writing. But when you read Everlasting Father, that tells you several things. 
And it tells you this, that God is infinite in his being. He is eternal. God doesn't measure or understand time the same way we do. He holds time in the very palms of his hands. He is mighty God, very God of very God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is truly infinite, truly self-existent, truly self-sufficient. That is why Isaiah says he is everlasting Father. He is eternal in and of his own ontological nature. Now, if you're taking notes this morning and you want to be clever over lunch, write down ontological. Ontological is basically the meaning of being. And God exists in and of himself. He's not dependent on someone else or something else. You and I, of course, are dependent on oxygen to breathe, water to, to survive. We need food. We need exercise. God is not dependent on anything or anyone. No one created him. He is not a dependent being. He is self-existent, self-sufficient, very God of very God, in and of himself. And that's what Isaiah is telling us. He is saying he is everlasting Father. That's the point he's making. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he is writing about God's eternal nature, this is what he says, talking about the birth of Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman. And it's those opening words that I want to draw your attention to. But when the time had fully come. Now, what does that mean? It means this, and I need you to use your imagination for a moment or two, if you would. Travel back with me before the dawn of time itself, when nothing and no one existed with the exception of the Godhead head itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one existed. And way back then, before matter was made, before history existed, here was God, best way to put it is purposing, planning, initiating the salvation of humanity. And he is putting in place again and again and again all the necessary mechanisms. And he does it with great patience. He does it with painstaking accuracy. And he perseveres and he does it to perfection. And Paul says, but when the time had fully come, because he is everlasting father, he's not in a rush. He doesn't make it up as he goes along. God wasn't sitting in heaven about four days or let's say nine months before the birth of Christ thinking, well, if they're going up to Jerusalem or going up to Bethlehem for the census, maybe I should take action. 
What do you think? Is that a good idea? Maybe I should let the Messiah be born to, who do we think? Oh, Mary and Joseph, let's select them. That sounds like a good idea. The very opposite is the case. Before the foundation of the world, he purposed and planned and was bringing to purpose his eternal decrees. Now, when we're listening to that this morning, most of you are saying, okay, Richard, I get it. I understand it. But help me grapple with that for my own life. I can see looking down through the dawn of history, I can see God's purposes and plans in eternity past, but how does that apply to me? Now, remember the principle is this, that God carefully, patiently, with painstaking attention to detail, not only works out His purposes and plans in history, but He does it in your life as well. Now, let me explain. When you find yourself in a particularly challenging situation, and you cannot wait for God to work, and you have prayed and prayed and prayed, and nothing is happening, and God is not answering those prayers, and you are asking yourself, Father, what on earth is going on? Why aren't you answering my prayers? I've been praying for this for weeks and months. What are you doing? Help me to understand. Now, when you find yourself in that situation, often what we do is that we pray more. We spend more time on our knees. And in the midst of all of that, our prayer sometimes becomes, Father, I've been praying for this. I've been looking forward to it. I've been anticipating your answer, and yet you're not answering my prayers. Is there something going on that I cannot see? What are you doing? Help me understand what is going on here. What are you doing? And in that period of waiting, in that period of profound dependency, what God is doing is this. He is taking you, heart, mind, and soul, and He is shaping you, and He is fashioning you, and He is molding you to be more Christ-like. So, in and through the patient endurance and the waiting and the deeper, more profound dependency, God is still at work. And that is why Paul, looking back, Isaiah, looking forward, and I'm fairly convinced Isaiah would also say of Paul, when the time had fully come because He is everlasting Father. Now, what does Paul mean when the time had fully come? Is he just being, is he using hyperbole here? Is he being metaphorical? Not in the least. Remember what it says, when the time had fully come. What is going on? It means this. Throughout the known world in the first century, the Roman Empire was dominant. And because the empire was dominant and had subdued most of the inhabited earth as it was then, what did they do? They built roads. They improved education, trade, commerce. 
and they stationed Roman garrisons across the inhabited world and brought about what is called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And people could travel from one end of the empire all the way to the other and do so reasonably, peaceably. The Greek language under Alexander the Great, known as Koinea Greek, common Greek, was used throughout the empire. So there was one language for trade and commerce, one language for education, and of course, Roman government and Roman roads enabled and encouraged trade, education, as we have said, and so the empire became a living reality. Now, as a result, after the resurrection of Christ, what happened? When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, there was this almighty explosion, and the gospel started to move throughout the entire empire. And it almost like, what is the best way to use it? It was, to say it, it was accelerated beyond belief in one generation in one generation, 25 years after the resurrection of Christ, the gospel was heading to the four corners of the world. When the time had fully come, God is not sitting back, biting his nails, saying, I wish someone would do something about the state of the world. He is actively engaged, bringing to pass his purpose and will. And as he does on a large historical scale, he does in our lives as well. That's what Isaiah is saying right here. Now, if you're saying, okay, Richard, I get it. I understand. I see the points you're making. But help me to understand what seems to be a contradiction in this, this verse. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. How can he be everlasting father and a son and a child all at the same time? How is that remotely possible? That seems a contradiction. Now, do you remember last Sunday, if you were with us, we raised the same question when we looked at the title, Mighty God? And what we said last Sunday was this, when we were going a little deeper, looking at the very nature of God, we said this, God is one in essence and three in persons. Do you remember we said that? In other words, in and of himself, his ontological being, if you like, is one in essence and three in persons. And why, why do we talk along these lines? What supports that kind of thesis? Well, simply this, that the Scriptures tell us again and again and again that the rights, the privileges, the attributes, and authority that Scripture give to God are also given to Christ and also given to the Holy Spirit. And that is crystal clear throughout Scripture. Go back right to the very beginning of Genesis. And as you read Genesis 1, it tells us that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Here was the triune God at work way back then. And so when we think of God, we think of Him as one in essence, three in spirit, unity in trinity. So when Isaiah is looking forward and saying, this child shall be born to us, a son is given, he will be everlasting father. It is God himself 
very God of very God will take on human nature and be born in the miracle of the incarnation. That's what's going on there. Now, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you are a Bible class leader, if theological inquiry is your thing, go home this afternoon or perhaps when you get into your car and Google hypostatic union. Now, the hypostatic union is a theological term for God, fully God, becoming man. Because I can't wait to read in the Greenville News tomorrow that hypostatic union is trending all over Google and Facebook and all of that. That would be spectacular. And it's a little technologically difficult, but check it out. It is worth looking at. And again, the idea is here is God Himself coming into our world. That's what Isaiah was looking forward to. That's what Paul was looking back on. Now, when we are comparing Isaiah, and then, of course, with Paul in Galatians, there's one additional point of information you need. If you've got a little white space at the top of your Bible or in your margin, and you take notes, this is a phrase worth getting. St. Augustine said this, when he's considering the relationship between the Old Testament and the New, this is what he says, the New is the old concealed, and the old is the new revealed. That is worth getting down. It's worth getting in your head. It's worth remembering because we see it all over Scripture. Because as Christians, we don't simply have the Old Testament, neither do we simply have the new, but we have both. We have what is called the totality of God's Word. And so, when Paul is looking back and Isaiah is looking forward, what is the relationship? The new is in the old revealed, and the old is, excuse me, concealed, and the old is in the new revealed, and that is worth getting. And in fact, Jesus, when the disciples asked Him, almost in the last week of His life here on earth, they were wrestling to get their heads around one in essence, three in persons, and Jesus is explaining to them His relationship with His Father. This is what He says, and this comes from John chapter 14. And Jesus says, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And He wraps it up by saying, believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That's the point He's making. So, when we are tempted to think how can this Messiah be a child and a son and eternal father all at the same time? That's what's going on. God in all of His fullness. Let me stop there and finish with a focus on Father. So, we've looked at the eternal, infinite nature of God, but why call Him Father? Why doesn't Isaiah simply write everlasting God? everlasting Redeemer, everlasting King. But He chooses very carefully, quite intentionally, everlasting Father. Do you remember about 18 months ago, we spent probably seven or eight Sundays looking at the Lord's Prayer. 
And we said during that time that the two opening words of the Lord's Prayer were some of the most important words contained in the entire Gospels. And they begin, Our Father. Our Father. And Isaiah is doing the same thing here. He's saying, God Himself Lord God Almighty, He who was and is and is still to come. That's what Isaiah was saying. God will come to earth and be what? Known by us, and we will know Him as our Father. All of that is wrapped up right in there. And remember what we also said when it comes to prayer, that our prayer is not predicated on saying particular words. In other words, prayer is not about a set liturgy. It's not about saying the same thing again and again and again. It's not about repetition. It's not about empty words devoid of content. First and foremost, it's about relationship. That's the point. It's about relationship. Now, let me do a quick survey as I try and pull all this together. If you are a dad here this morning, perhaps you're watching on television, listening on the web, let me ask you to raise your hand if at some point one or all of your children have called you by your given name. They've called you John or Tom or Frank or Jean. Let me see. Yep, I think most dads have that experience at some point or another. And of course, it's usually when our kids are eight or nine and they're pushing their luck a little and they think it will be fun, they try out dad's name and so they try it. Usually they only ever try it once because dads kind of smile and nod and just moves them along and they give up. But it inevitably makes dads feel a little odd or awkward when your children call you by your given name. Now, why is that? That happens because of our relationship with our children. Our friends call us by our given name. People at work call us by our given name. People in our neighborhood call us by our given name, but not our children. Why? Because as a father, in an instant, we would give our life for our children. We wouldn't think twice about it. We have a love relationship with our children, and it's a love we don't have for anyone else. I wouldn't die for my next-door neighbors. I like them. I like them a lot. We have great friends. They're good neighbors, but I wouldn't die for them. They're good friends. We hang out together. We engage with our children, and we live in a wonderful neighborhood. But I don't have the same relationship with them that I have with Michael. That's the point Isaiah is making. He is your loving, gracious, heavenly Father. In fact, John, towards the end of the New Testament, puts it this way. The end of the New Testament, there are three Johannine epistles, and in 1 John we read this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Not grudgingly, not, oh, here they come again. I suppose I should try and encourage them a little or pick up their spirits. He has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 
God, for that is what we are. So when we climb up, metaphorically speaking, into the lap of God and rest there in prayer, and when we begin our Father, it is because of our relationship. That's the point Isaiah is making. That's why this child will grow up to be everlasting Father, everlasting Father, eternal in nature, infinite in His being. This morning, as we draw it all to a close, we can say definitively this, that as we move towards Christmas Day itself, a week tomorrow, as we enjoy the wonder and the thrill and the joy that Christmas brings, please, when you have a moment sitting in a doctor's office, you're waiting for a meeting to begin, you're sitting at traffic lights, and prayerfully your mind is beginning to wander and you're thinking of all of the wonders and blessings of the season, please remember that He is wonderful counselor, absolutely, mighty God, of course, but He is also everlasting Father, very God of very God, true light of true light. Infinity cannot contain Him. Eternity cannot encompass Him. Kings gathered to worship Him. Prophets longed to see Him. History is defined by Him. The sonnets of eternity past speak of Him, because in Him is found the salvation of humanity, because He is in and of Himself, in His very nature and being. He is and thankfully he is everlasting Father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for your incredible love for us. Help us again this week to be overwhelmed by your grace. Grant us patient endurance as we go deeper in our relationship with you, and may we enjoy this Christmas season because you are at the very center of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer. 